This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> much better, much better. I'd like to hear from the church. Um, welcome to our third session of Confronting Katrina, Race, Class, and Disaster in American Society. We appreciate you all joining us here this evening uh, on what hopefully does not turn into too wet and dreary an occasion. My name is Lawrence Bobo, and I am the director of the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity and of the program in African and African American Studies here at Stanford. We continue to be very pleased to bring you these important panels, the information they provide, and the discussions we hope they stimulate. And on behalf of my colleagues in CCSRE, thank you again for coming out this evening. Before specifically introducing tonight's session and moderator, let me remind you that we will have a fourth and final session on November 28th, the Monday following the Thanksgiving holiday. We have titled this final session, Lessons from Katrina. You will not want to miss it. It's going to be very lively. The session will feature journalist and CNN reporter Suzanne Malveaux, a native of New Orleans and who reported intensively and quite effectively and powerfully on events uh, in New Orleans. The panel will also include David T. Elwood, Dean of Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, uh, Michelle Dauber of the Stanford Law School, and our own distinguished emeritus professor of political science and former president of the American Political Science Association, Lucius Barker. Now this final session is going to take place in Kresge Auditorium over there next uh, to the law school, so uh, please be mindful of the change in venue. The time will be the same, but a different venue. Our session tonight is entitled Organizations as the Solution and the Problem. Events in New Orleans and other Gulf Coast communities in the wake of hurricanes uh, Katrina and Rita reminded us not only that poverty and racial inequality remain contemporary challenges, and not only that how the media packages and presents such events to us profoundly shapes the collective understanding of what happened and why. But perhaps above all else, those events drove home the necessity of thinking carefully through the obligations of a responsible and competent government to its fellow citizens and of each of us to one another and to the communities in which we live. These, of course, are intrinsically large and complex questions with no simpler pet answers. In that regard, then, I think we are quite fortunate that our panel tonight is composed of several Stanford faculty who will help shed light from a variety of perspectives um, on our capacities and proper duties as an affluent democratic society in response to this kind of event. Now, recall when we opened uh, this set, these uh, series of panels, that we decided to focus on what happened after Katrina because it impelled us to see and to think about deep-rooted problems in the American social fabric. I think it's fair to say that the sort of courses and events regularly put before the community by CCSRE routinely address these types of deep-rooted problems. Wrestling with these issues is, in effect, much of the core mission and bread and butter of what we do at CCSRE, what we think about, what we try to bring to the university community. So if you don't mind a small plug, be sure to pick up our brochures and materials before you depart this evening if you have not already done so. But in general, these events put back on the agenda 
the need to think about what a good and just society should do to bring into the mainstream those too long left on the margins of society. And indeed, in the light of larger world events, I think, it is especially appropriate for us to be focusing such a steady gaze on how Katrina put on center stage problems of extreme economic inequality and racial discrimination. As you are all probably aware, for the past 12 days straight, the news has given us scenes of the cities of France in flames. The rioting has claimed its first fatality now, and 77 policemen as well as 31 firemen have been injured, and nearly 600 people have been arrested as the French government has now moved to declare a state of emergency and impose curfews in many cities. As of this evening, approximately 5,000 vehicles had been destroyed, along with dozens of public and private buildings, as the largely French-born youth of Arab and North African descent have risen up in response to what they see as persistent neglect and disadvantage, police brutality, and indifference and discrimination from the larger French society. This scenario of complaints, sadly, is one known all too well here in the U.S. The events in France of the past 12 days, as even President Jacques Chirac recognized, showed that France, quote, has not done everything possible for these youths of African and North African origin or supported them so that they feel understood, heard, and respected. And in these events, images, and words, do we not hear the echoes of Katrina and of America's historic divides of race and of class? I mention these events in France not because they will dominate our discussion tonight, they won't or shouldn't, but rather to say that the ideas and questions we do and will address here this evening, while motivated by the specific events in New Orleans, are not simply about that one catastrophic event. We hope to illuminate, spark discussion about, and engage you all in making progress on the fundamental ongoing conditions and challenges for our society that those events brought back into sharp relief just as the events in France have brought into sharp relief some of the fundamental ongoing conditions and problems that that society must face. Our session this evening, I'm delighted to say, will be led and moderated by my colleague, David Palumbo Lou. Palumbo Lou is professor of comparative literature at Stanford. He received both his undergraduate and graduate training at Berkeley, where he completed his PhD in 1988. He has spent uh, two years in East Asia, one a year in Taiwan, and one uh, in uh, Kyoto, Japan, both occurring while he held prestigious fellowships from the American Council of Learned Societies and the Social Science Research Council. In 1990, he joined the Department of Comparative Literature here at Stanford. He is, I'm delighted to remind you all, a founding member of the faculty for the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity and of the program in Asian American Studies. He currently directs our program in Asian American Studies and is an affiliate member of East Asian Studies. From 1999 to 2005, of course, he served with distinction as director of the program in Modern Thought and Literature. Uh, Palumbo Lu's current research includes studies of border art, notions of affinity in literature, race, media, and visuality, culture and public policy, and the aesthetics and et ethics of globalization. Please join me in welcoming Professor uh, David Palumbo Lu. Thank you very much for that introduction. It was much longer than I actually gave uh, Larry, uh, but I appreciate it. Uh, I'm, I've been invited to make an opening statement and then introduce the panelists, so here goes. 
Almost immediately after Katrina hit, there was a flurry of conflicting reports on how the relief efforts were going. But one thing seemed certain, they weren't going well. Local, state, and federal agencies engaged in what became known as the blame game, even as each denied that they were denying responsibility. Finger pointing seemed to be the name of the game. Today's panel will attempt to gauge how responsibility for social welfare has been located, delegated, accepted, or abrogated, both in the specific instance of Katrina, but also conceived of more generally. How has the role of government interfaced with the role of non-governmental agencies or not? What would be the proper and effective distribution of responsibility? What do we look to our government to do for us? And what is our role as citizens and members of communities to create and sustain organizations that can address our immediate and long-term needs? And finally, are those private organizations an indispensable help or a weighty hindrance to the delivery of aid and assistance? In many senses, this is more than simply a matter of logistics. It's also a matter of how we define our sense of community and of governance, and this ultimately comes down to, for me, the issue of who we are and what the common good is. For whether we are speaking of the role of government or of private organizations, I think that we as Americans hold both to the same standard, and that is of serving as best as possible the common good. For my remarks then, which are decidedly coming from a non-expert literary point of view, I'll be focusing on this humanistic idea of the common good. Let me read first brief, uh, read briefly from the statement the president made upon his first visit to New Orleans. Bush declared that, quote, the federal government's job is big, it's massive, and we're going to do it. We have a responsibility at the federal level to help save life, and that's the primary focus right now. Every life is precious, and so we're going to spend a lot of time saving lives. We have a responsibility to help clean up this mess, and I want to thank the Congress for acting as quickly as you did. Step one is to appropriate 10.5 billion, but I've got to warn everybody that's just the beginning. That's just a small down payment for the cost of this effort, but to help the good folks here, we need to do it." End quote. Whether he knew it or not, the president effectively articulated the role of the federal government. He then moved from the general, saving lives, to the more specific, the lives of good folks here, and re-articulated the ethical obligation to do so. We need to do it. But there was also something interesting going on here that may have slipped past us, for his statement contains a direct address, you. And the you of the statement is neither the American people nor the good people of the state, but Congress. A short moment later, he continued, quote, we're going to help these communities rebuild. The good news is, and it's hard for some to see it now, that out of this chaos is going to come a fantastic Gulf Coast, like it was before. Out of the rubbles of Trent Lott's house, he's lost his entire house, there's going to be a fantastic house, and I'm looking forward to sitting on the porch. The transcript then reads, laughter. The, co the collected dignitaries, unlike some people who Bush feels might not find it easy to see the upside of this, relax into the down-home tone and imagine the president reclining in this fantastic new house. Or maybe that was nervous laughter, slightly embarrassed by that attempt to leaven the otherwise somber occasion. I don't think Bush meant to be callous. Rather, the opposite. He was obviously trying to personalize the relief effort to give a name to the good folk who were going to be helped. 
The problem is that in his enthusiastic efforts to personalize the situation, he pointed to exactly the issue of who we are, and it shows his personal reference group. The distance between the saving of lives and the palatial aspirations of the new lot residents speaks volumes about what sort of status quo would be important to guarantee. But I don't want to be ungenerous to the president. The fantastic Gulf Coast to be built may indeed be built with an eye toward rebuilding a new and more equitable social, political, and economic base. And there was hope for that in the president's next pronouncement as he evoked the golden rule. Quote, now I also want to say something about the compassion of the people of Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and surrounding states. I want to thank you for your compassion. Now is the time to love a neighbor like you'd like to be loved yourselves. The faith-based groups and the community-based groups throughout this part of the world, and for the country for that matter, are responding. If you want to help, give cash money to the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. That's where the first help will come. Here we find a different you, not Congress, but the local residents of the Gulf Coast, and by extension, the American public. Bush thus clearly articulated the distribution of responsibility that we'll be discussing today the role of government and its set of individuals, and another set of people who are asked to love others as they would want to be loved themselves. But, and this is the point I want to emphasize, the connection between the two remains to be ascertained. Let me give just a few examples of why I am not optimistic that the two are indeed conceived of as the same as they are meant to be. That is, in the sense that both groups would be working toward the same goals of saving lives, rebuilding everybody's houses, to that equally fantastic standard, and creating a new Gulf Coast that would work toward the common good. I'll be speaking not so much about the government versus organizations, but rather of different notions of how government might work. We used to say that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And that is how I regard the current situation in Washington. It has created problems that organizations are now asked to solve. However, the current environment for finding such solutions is so complex and corrupt that it would be almost impossible to assess whether organizations alone can be problems or solutions. One prevalent attitude toward government feels that it interferes with individual liberty, is less efficient than the private sector, and in many cases, it's unnecessary. If that is the case, then we would do well to look to organizations to provide aid and assistance. Yet without adequate oversight and coordination, these efforts may be worse than ineffective. And there's, even, uh, there's an even more pernicious possibility, one that seems already manifest, and that is the appropriation of the common good for the private good, and the withdrawing of the protections and safety nets for the poor and those least able to find representation in the corridors of power. Among the world's industrial nations, the US has the lowest overall level of taxation, especially for the wealthy, the weakest regulations on business for consumer and, protector, uh, and worker protections, and the smallest safety net in terms of health insurance, child care, and anti-poverty programs. At this point, the U.S. has the same infant mortality rate as Malaysia, and New Orleans can we be considered a third world country in terms of poverty, infant mortality, and other factors. In the efforts to reduce government further, proponents of smaller government advocate cutting taxes even more, calling this, quote, starving the beast, such that the government becomes virtually paralyzed. The effects of such a policy are evident in Katrina's wake. Although in a 2001 report, FEMA identified a major hurricane hitting New Orleans as one of the, quote, three likeliest, most catastrophic disasters facing the country, Bush and the GOP Congress cut the budget 
for the Army Corps of Engineers and various projects that would have protected New Orleans from a Category 4 hurricane. The first director of FEMA under President Bush, Joseph Albaugh, had no disaster relief experience, and soon after joining FEMA, he characterized it, quote, as an oversized entitlement program, and he urged states, cities, and victims of disaster to rely instead on, quote, faith-based organizations such as the Salvation Army and the uh, Memonite Disaster Service. Under his and his successor's leadership, the Bush administration drastically cut the budget for FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers. But witnessing now the catastrophic and fatal results of such a program of cutting back government services alone does not absolutely prove the case for more government. The real delink here is that the move to the private does not guarantee any better result. In fact, we have increasing evidence that movement has not been so much from the federal government to the private sector, but amongst and within a circle of political and financial players, wherein oversight is increasingly obviated. And in it, we find the enormous potential for abuse. Who is to be held accountable and how? The trend toward outsourcing government functions and toward privatization is clearly evident in the Iraq war and continues in the Katrina relief efforts. This outsourcing of what was traditionally regarded before the Reagan era as the role of government can lead to the diversion of aid money, be it private or public, into projects that only minimally benefit those hardest hit by Katrina, the poor. Funneling cash and incentives into some groups may be of dubious use, especially if precisely those um, whom are to be served are not represented or given a voice in exactly how they are to be loved. Instead, we seem to have the endless looping of influence and profit. Bush's first FEMA director, Albaugh, resigned in 2003 to lead Newbridge Strategies, which describes itself as, quote, a unique company that was created specifically with the aim of assisting clients to evaluate and take advantage of business opportunities in the Middle East following the conclusion of the U.S.-led war in Iraq, end quote. He has since been hired to work for Kellogg, Brown, and Root to, as he declares in his lobbying disclosure form, quote, educate the congressional and executive branch on defense, disaster relief, and homeland security issues, end quote. KBR is a subsidiary of Halliburton and has now been awarded the contract to rebuild the naval facilities damaged by Katrina. The agreement brings the current value of Halliburton's Katrina contracts to $61.3 million, a, like, a number likely to keep growing. Critics are concerned about that Halliburton's Iraq performance, called poor by the U.S. State Department, will be exported to areas affected by Katrina. According to Pentagon reports, the company failed to account for 43% of its Middle East expenses, with $1 billion of those being considered unreasonable, quote-unquote, and another nearly half billion in the, quote, unsupported category, according to Defense Department auditors. But the contracts for Halliburton keep rolling in. This is very good for some, catastrophic for others. And to make the contract even more attractive, President Bush suspended the federal Davis-Bacon law requiring contractors working on recovery and reconstruction efforts to pay a fair minimum wage to its employees. Wages in Louisiana are already 19% below the national average. Wages for workers in Mississippi are 28% below the national average. I have to ask again, who are we? Where is our tax money going? What is the common good? Let me just give one other example of how the relief efforts have benefited some more than others. Let's talk taxes. During the debate over the recently passed Katrina Emergency Tax Relief Act, a provision allowing those who might inherit estates from anyone who died in Katrina 
to help uh, to escape the estate tax was removed. Since the estate tax applies to only those leaving behind estates valued at more than $1.5 million, and the median income of New Orleans is $27,000, it does seem unseemly to deny relief funds to the majority of the good folk in New Orleans, that is the poor, for the sake of creating a special exemption for those very few multimillionaire heirs. But we had to think about it. While the estate tax was left in place, the act does let individuals write off contributions of up to 100% of the donor's gross income. That is, if you're wealthy enough to be able to give that much, you can benefit from enormous tax savings. This is well and good, but there's an interesting little comment balloon on the IRS's documentation for this act, and you can just look, up, up, look it up on the IRS website. It says, quote, this provision is one of the few that, that does not require a connection with Hurricane Katrina. Any and all cash contributions made by an individual taxpayer made after August 27th through the end of the year qualify for exemption from the contribution base rule. That is, one could give to the New York Philharmonic, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or even Yale University, and get relief from taxes meant to assist Katrina victims. Now, one way to look at this is that I've essentially proven the case that government is bad, and that we need now to rely on the public sector, a uh, private sector, sorry. Uh, to this I would say, well, yes and no. Yes, turning to the private se sector might be a way to escape from the ways this government has siphoned common resources into the uncommon good, but it could also simply exacerbate the situation. An alternative might be the one in which the government was actually by, of, and for the people. And I will, re will reanimate that notion of the people as a real entity, not as a figurehead. And it would be and it would equally apply to organizational solutions for organizations can be just as top-heavy, alienated from the real world, and self-serving. As Naomi Klein suggests, quote, for a people's reconstruction process to become a reality, the evacuees must be at the center of all decision-making. New Orleans could be reconstructed by and for the very people most victimized by the flood. Schools and hospitals that are falling apart could finally have adequate resources, the rebuilding could create thousands of local jobs and provide massive skills training in decent paying industries." End quote. Now the elitist in us might recoil. How could these people know what's good for them? But then again, how do we assume to know anything better than what kind of house Trent Lott needs? What I'd like to add to this conversation then is the more general question. Whether it be the government or private organizations, we're faced with the same issue of, de of determining who we are and who we want to be and how the deep fissures in any sense of common good seem to be so deeply embedded in both government and private practice today, and how we can be part of the solution to that very basic and very real problem. Now let me turn the discussion over to the experts. I'll introduce them all at once, and then they will each speak for about 15 minutes, after which we'll open the floor for questions. Uh, the first to speak will be Professor Deborah Satz, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy and director of the Ethics and Society program. Her research has focused on the meaning of equality, the ethical limits of markets, the theories of value, decision, and rational choice. Her articles have appeared in a variety of scholarly journals, and she's also authored a paper for a World Bank project on child labor. She won the Walter Gores Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2004. Next to speak is David Brady. David Brady is a professor of political science and the Graduate School of Business and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He writes on American politics and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Last to speak is Deborah L. Rohde. 
who is Ernest W. McFarland Professor of Law and Director of the newly founded Center on Ethics. She is a graduate of Yale and Yale Law School and clerked for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Rhodey is the former president of the Association of American Law Schools and author or co-author of 16 books in the area of professional ethics, gender law, and public policy. She is recently the author of Pro Bono in Principle and Practice. Please join me in welcoming the three panelists. Hurricane Katrina was unusual, not so much for its strength, but for the way that it endured and festered. Unlike most hurricanes that are over in a relatively quick burst, Katrina continued to get worse. The waters rose for two days after the storm had passed. The waters carried disease, poisonous snakes, and the bodies of neighbors and abandoned pets. A week after the disaster, the bodies were still floating in these stinking waters. For days, thousands of poor, abandoned, hungry, and frightened people were left in darkness at the New Orleans Convention Center or crowded together in the Louisiana Superdome. Hurricanes are not preventable. Hurricanes are, at least to a large extent, acts of nature. I say to a large extent and not completely, because hurricanes are climatic events and climate is affected by human actions. Now, I'm not an expert on either hurricanes or climate or natural disaster. I'm a political philosopher. So I'm going to stick to what I know. And in my comments this evening, I want to introduce you to a set of distinctions, philosophical distinctions, that I think are useful in our attempt to make sense of Hurricane Katrina and come to grips with the lessons that it holds for us. The first is the distinction between acts of nature and acts due to human institutions. And in the language I'll be using between, in the talk, between misfortune and injustice. The second is the distinction between governmental action on grounds of justice and private action on grounds of charity. So let me begin with the first distinction that between justice and misfortune. Imagine two cases, each involving the mass starvation of parts of the globe. In the first case, there's simply not enough food to feed the many people who are hungry. Imagine that in this case, no matter what anyone did, millions of people would continue to die because there's a shortage of food relative to the numbers of hungry people. For those of you who know Malthus's thought, this is exactly what Malthus predicted because he believed that population would continue to grow exponentially while the food supply would only grow linearly. If people dying of hunger around the globe are randomly distributed, then in our hypothetical example, the tragedy of starvation is due solely to nature. Many bad things happen by nature's hand. People die prematurely from diseases from, for which we have no cure. Others are buried in avalanches. Some people are born with severe and incurable defects that prevent them from living even a minimally decent life. In the language I'll use in this talk, such events are tragic, sometimes even unbearably so, 
but they are not unjust. The fact that foxes eat rabbits is a misfortune for the rabbit, but in the terminology I'm using here, it's not an injustice. Now imagine a second case, where again, millions of people die of hunger. But in this case, let's suppose that this outcome is the result of a deliberate government policy that targets members of an ethnic or religious minority, perhaps by herding them into barren land that cannot support them and physically preventing them from leaving that land. Now, I think most people will react very differently to these two cases. Why? Undoubtedly, part of the answer is that in the second case, the death by hunger is avoidable, whereas in the first case, it's not. We could do something in the second case to change the bad result. It's not inevitable in that case that people die of starvation. But I think perhaps the primary reason for our differing reactions to these two cases is our attitude to the differing causes of the negative outcomes. In the second case, the case where the government is um, hurting members of a group um, into barren land for starvation, to starve them to death, um, the bad outcome is the result of human actions and institutions. It's our hand that is played here and not nature's. People are the agents through their institutions of the outcome. People are responsible for the starvation. If it were our government targeting some groups for starvation, then we would bear responsibility as citizens of that government. Consider cases where people die prematurely because they're held as political prisoners in appalling conditions, or where they are victims of government-sponsored violence that leaves them so physically or emotionally damaged as to prevent them from living even a minimally decent life. In the language I'll use in this talk, such events are not simply misfortunes, they are injustices. Now, sometimes events that we think fall into one category turn out on closer inspection to fall into another. For example, we live in a world with frequent famines. It's often assumed that we can do little to remedy these desperate situations and that Malthusian pessimism is the appropriate response to humanity's prospects for escaping hunger. But Nobel laureate Amartya Sen's work shows that famines are never caused by a mere mechanical imbalance between the food supply and human population. Rather, poor people die of hunger and famines even when there is plenty of food in a country. The Bangladeshi famine of 1974, in which hundreds of thousands of people died of hunger, actually occurred at a time when there was greater food availability per head than in any other year between 1971 and 1976. The starvation was initiated by regional unemployment caused by floods. Because of unemployment, poor workers lost wages that they needed to buy food on the market. The poor starved because they had no social entitlement to food. Sen's punchline is that famines never occur in democracy because democracies cannot ignore mass starvation. I should say there's a little controversy about um, Sen's finding, but I think the general point is true, although there are one or two counterexamples. Changing the way that we understand an event can change our sense of our responsibility for that event. If we think of a bad outcome as the result of nature, 
then we'll usually feel less responsible for redressing it than if it's the outcome of actions that we ourselves have undertaken. For example, people who believe that world poverty is largely caused by our institutions, such as U.S. agriculture subsidies or the terms of global trade, think about their responsibilities quite differently than those who think that such poverty is explained by natural shortages or local causes beyond our control. People find it all too easy to ignore misfortune or to do too little to repair nature's damages. Without wishing to endorse this view, I think that there is a, a role for this distinction between misfortune and justice, and I want to mention three ways that we might think our society's institutions caused or exacerbated Katrina's effects, turning it from a case of natural disaster to a case involving human-made injustice. First, I want you to consider that although acts of nature are not preventable, they are often predictable. When a calamity is predictable, usually with less than complete certainty, we must make a judgment about how much cost it is reasonable to pay to be free from the risk of it. In New Orleans, the erosion of the area's barrier islands and the dredging of channels to accommodate shipping increased the risks of damage from natural disaster. Over the years, multiple warnings about those risks had gone out, including warnings about the inadequacy of the levees. Had the levees been adequate, the hurricane's path would not have turned so deadly or destructive. Of course, risk assessment under uncertainty is a complex business. Even the best human calculator can make the wrong calculation. When a rational agent makes an incorrect assessment that leaves him in jeopardy, we expect that he will act quickly to minimize the damage. When government, as our agent, makes an incorrect assessment that leaves its citizens in jeopardy, we expect that it will act quickly to minimize the damage. Yet when the levees broke, there was no effective evacuation plan in place. The fact that 27% of the city's households did not even own a car was somehow overlooked in the plans of the city's public officials. The city's fleet of public buses and school buses were left idle. There was no resettlement plan. Too many people were simply abandoned, left to watch their lives wash out to sea. Poor planning then, poor planning by human agencies, and poor responses exacerbated the hurricane's effects. Second, I want you to consider the effects of Katrina that are largely due to extreme poverty. Extreme poverty in an affluent nation cannot be seen as a fact of nature. In New Orleans, nearly 50,000 people were residents of neighborhoods where the poverty rate exceeded 40%. In those areas, which contained 80% of the city's minority population, the average household family income was about $20,000 annually. Only one in 12 adults held a college degree. Four, in five children, four out of five children were raised in single-parent families, and four in 10 working-age adults, many of them disabled, were not connected to the labor force. That so many people from these neighborhoods had no friends or relatives to turn to for shelter or financial assistance shows us that the poor are isolated socially as well as geographically.
Many of the people living in high poverty neighborhoods were cut off from information about the impending disaster, as well as transportation away from it. These social facts, not natural facts, amplified the hurricane's effects. Third, I want you to think about the effects of inaction, no action at all, by the federal and local government. As is well known, it was only four days after the main thrust of the storm and after continued and severe damage and suffering that the federal government responded. The terrible experiences of the victims who suffered through the aftermath and the stinking darkness of the Louisiana Superdome and the New Orleans Convention Center could have been averted if the federal government, and specifically FEMA, had quickly marshaled the will and resources to move out those roughly 120,000 people. How can it be correct, though, to view the government's inaction as a cause? How can failing to do something actually enter into the causal network? And that brings me to my second distinction, um, government action on grounds of justice versus private action on grounds of charity. I want to separate two issues raised in this drawing this distinction. The first question is, what are the best methods for preventing disasters and for responding to them should they occur? And the second question is, what are our obligations when we're confronted with disasters? And those are separate questions, although there's, there, there are connections. Over the last decades, there's been growing skepticism about the clumsy hand of government and little faith in collective action as a response to social problems. As the great philosopher Groucho Marx put it, politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it, misdiagnosing it, and then misapplying the wrong remedies. Many people believe that instead of pressing for public political solutions to social problems, we should rely on private actions supplied by either the market or by charitable giving. It's true that many of our social ends can in principle be accomplished through an array of different means. But all available means have their limits. Government is clumsy, markets fail to achieve efficient results under many circumstances, the record of private enterprises regarding safety has never been very good, for example, except when safety standards have been imposed by the state. With respect to charity, although many people give generously, individual contributions to global hunger are dwarfed by government giving, which itself remains woefully inadequate. There are some ends that only an adequately resourced and responsibly run government can hope to deliver. The distinction between collective action by government and individual private action is related to another distinction, and it is with this distinction that I want to close my remarks. So there's the question, the distinction of means, whether we should use public means or private means, and here I think we want to do comparative analysis. These are instruments and think about which instruments are best in different, uh, for different goals, to which instruments are more effective in achieving our goals. But there's also a question um, about what we owe one another. So let me turn to this distinction between charity and justice. I've already said that misfortune 
we can distinguish between misfortune and just, uh, injustice. Now I want to make a distinction between justice and charity. And the distinction I have in mind is this, between charity understood as a morally motivated personal gift from the fortunate to the unfortunate, and justice understood as an obligation to give people what is owed them. Both of these concepts are important, and both have a role to play in our collective life. But they should not be confused with one another, and on, least, and, and on at least the conventional understanding of charity, they have different implications for the question of our responsibility. Let me elaborate. And I should say there are many conceptions of justice and many conceptions of charity. I'm giving what I think are the standard contemporary view of charity. There are things that it would be good for me to do, but which are not requirements of justice. It would be good for me to eat a balanced diet, but no one thinks that this is something that should be enforced by the state. Similarly, many people who think it is good to help others in need do not also think that they should be compelled to do so. It is different with justice. If we think something is owed to someone on grounds of justice, then failing to provide them with that thing is a violation of their rights, not merely an inaction. If we think that protection from natural disaster is a good that is owed to all Americans on grounds of justice, then we can view our government's inaction as a causal factor in Katrina. By failing to act in the face of this disaster, the government arguably harmed its own citizens by depriving them of something that they were entitled to. Government inaction was actually an action a harming. In the political theorist Judith Schlar's terms, government's inaction in the face of this disaster was a case of passive injustice. Now there's an upside to viewing um, the government's inaction as a case of injustice, because if it's a case of injustice, then it's amenable to improvement, unlike an act of nature, which we can't change. There was a time when most Americans believed that all citizens had claims of justice on the resources of government for securing certain goods that individuals could not provide for themselves. Among those goods were security and protection from forces beyond their control. Some people like me would go further than this, arguing that government owes its members the minimum requirements for playing their role as free and equal citizens in a democracy. Katrina shows us how little even the more minimal view of what we owe each other is held today, at least by public officials. Katrina is a window through which to view the receding of this vision of our collective obligation. It's a window with which to come to terms with what we ourselves believe and to press our opinions in public discussions with public officials and in our own collective actions. Ultimately, how we judge the events surrounding Hurricane Katrina depends on whether we view the claims of the poor to security and protection as entitlements that they have as our fellow citizens or as optional goods best left to the kindness of strangers. Thank you.
Deborah Satz has uh, talked about justice, and uh, Deborah Rohde is going to talk about um, altruism and possible solutions. Unfortunately, uh, my task is what would an organization look like that could plan for an event which would occur only every 100 years, and why FEMA isn't that organization? So, um, I'm gonna. Uh, so and, and so, how can I uh, how can I look at that? Uh, well, the first thing is I understand that FEMA was not set up to be a first responder. FEMA was set up uh, as sort of an insurance adjuster, and to provide flood insurance. That was in the 50s, and then over time, the president and Congress, uh, as disaster after disaster occurs, uh, they modify that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the modification, but. In order to get away, so but I wanted to get away from the politics of it, uh, and so how, how could I do that? So well, I want to step away from Katrina, and I want to look at another disaster, and that disaster has to be pretty significant. And two, I have to be able to uh, be able to assess the effects of that. So what I'm looked at was the 1993 uh, Great Flood on the Mississippi River. Okay. And uh, the idea uh, there was, uh, I now have an effect. And I get away from the politics in the sense that if I look at uh, President Bush's uh, our, our ratings on how he handled Katrina, they're very bad. And if I look at uh, how he handled uh, Rita, he got 75% approval ratings. Well, I mean, what really happened was he kind of dropped down there, looked around, went back, and uh, the hurricane, the good, the good thing was the hurricane really sort of missed Houston. And that's the main difference. But if you, uh, and we uh, actually, we, my family and I lived there in 1975, and so we were through a 3.5 hurricane that actually hit Houston. And uh, so, so I'm familiar with that, but I can tell you that I would never have gone out on the highway to try and get out of Houston. It's just impossible, There's, as you saw on the thing. So that was a FEMA, another FEMA plan. Um, so let me talk about that a little bit. So I, I'm going to look at the 1993 floods. So the first thing I start with is after, uh, after the uh, 1992 uh, Hurricane Andrew, the National Academy of Public Administration conducted a two-year study in which they concluded that FEMA has not yet integrated uh, its missions. And then the 1993 flood hit, huge cost, $16 billion in damage, 550 people dead. And so on and so forth, and it's, uh, I guess some of you actually were born in 1993. Uh, so uh, at any rate, you may have actually remember that the rest of you students don't. It was a big flood, a lot of water. Um, okay, so, uh, so if I, uh, no, so I want to go back and I want to do a little recounting of that, and the purpose of my recounting it is to, uh, again, try and get a handle on that. Uh, uh, mid, uh, the, the lower, um, upper Mississippi and lower Missouri River basins from mid-June through early August provide evidence that the nation has not yet reached an accommodation between nature's periodic need to occupy her floodplains and the present human occupancy and use. The floods generated the highest flood crests ever recorded at 95 measuring stations and so on. $16 billion of damage, about only one of the 10 affected structures that were wiped out had flood insurance. Okay. So uh, that flood insurance then sought uh, after the thing that Congress and President Clinton put together policy to try and look at this, and uh, they, had four, uh, they had four sort of uh, basic uh, uh, things they were supposed to deal with. Whether to repair or reconstruct the hundreds of damaged flood control levees or other structural protective measures in future floods. 
And who would pay for permitted repairs? Whether to permit repair or rebuilding of thousands of substantially damaged structures. Three, whether to commit community planning and financial assistance to develop alternative mitigation strategies to the typical repair, and whether to use the experience of risk insurance as a mitigation tool. Okay? So uh, that's, that's, uh, that's fairly standard. So uh, th then if we go on, uh, wh what do they say? Uh, the National Performance Review finds that the provision of federal disaster assistance is too generous and too frequent, with the possible result that the federal government may be perceived as the state's first-line resource in every emergency. That was echoing past recommendations, 1981, 1973, 1979, 1959. It doesn't matter. They reorganize because of the criticism. Now, uh, you can, they're going to be continuing to do that. They're going to do it now, they're going to continue to do it, and they'll always do it. Okay? Uh, due to extensive flooding during the previous fiscal year, the National Flood Insurance Program experienced losses that are more than twice its historic loss level and must borrow $100 million from the Department of Treasury to meet its needs for cash. That sound familiar? does, the amounts are going to be much uh, larger in this time. Uh, the Volkmer Amendment, so the Congress is passing this law and you get a recommendation from Congressman Volkmer to the Hazard Mitigation Act, which increases federal support for relocating flood-prone properties and to increase the amount of hazard mitigation funds available after a disaster to 15% of all of FEMA's appropriated federal disaster funds, and it increases from, to 75% from 50% the share of the cost of mitigation activities the federal government will do versus state and local. So even within six months after the time that the reports come out and say the opposite, Congress has behaved in uh, the, the opposite way. Uh, one, other, uh, one other factor from that uh, that was sort of interesting, there's a three-day five, three, wait period uh, that, so that you can buy flood insurance. If you buy the flood insurance, it immediately takes effect. So there were uh, about 35,000 policies sold when people knew they were going to flood, i.e., you're on the Mississippi River, the flood's coming down the river, you can actually buy the insurance. Now, does that sound like a smart move? I mean, you really can't think of it as too smart. I, I don't want to take any insurance to cover anybody else. I want to wait until I know it's going to affect me, and then I want to set up so I can buy it. Uh, and so, again, uh, again, the Galloway Report, 1996, the famous report on the Mississippi flood, concludes that uh, in the National Performance Review, the Galloway Report notes that overly generous federal disaster assistance has the potential to reduce individuals' responsibilities to protect themselves against disasters. So again, the notion is state and local governments uh, will do less. And uh, I could go on, uh, except I think uh, that, that part's clear. And uh, what's the effect of all this? What's the effect of all this? 11 years later, uh, what, what, what has happened? Uh, 12 years later, what's happened? Well, what the, what the government did was they set up this cost-benefit analysis. So 
when you look for what do you do to restore these areas, those four areas I gave you, the cost-benefit analysis did the following thing. It essentially allowed many more shopping centers to be built, and it restored some land to grow rice, and essentially, uh, I read from the Sierra Club's report now, the U.S. government does more to promote floods than any other entity. More than 40 separate federal programs and agencies govern everything from highway construction to farm export policy, encourage building and farming on floodplains and wetlands. In 1996 alone, uh, according to Sierra Club Midwest representative Brett Halsey and the National Wildlife Federation, over $7 billion was poured into 10 programs that aggravate flooding. So much subsidy goes into the development of floodplains that there's no incentive to stay out, says Nancy Felipe, Vice President of the Wetlands Initiative in Chicago. Between 1960 and 1985, the federal government spent $38 billion on flood control, yet average, every average annual flood damage adjusted for inflation continued to increase more than doubling. Since 1990, damage has averaged more than $5 billion a year, with rains pounded in the upper Mississippi watershed for days on end in the spring of 1930, the cost was $6.5 billion minimum. There is today on the Mississippi River a higher, not a lower probability that rain similar to 1993 will generate more flooding rather than less flooding. Now, why, why, should, that, uh, why should that be? And, and it seems to me the, the answer to that is that uh, Congress and the President, uh, in effect, use FEMA to distribute and redistribute pork barrel essentially, uh, in the case of Congress, to assure their re-election. And it's a very successful maneuver. Since 1930 to 2005, 97% of incumbent congressmen and congresswomen who've sought re-election have been re-elected. So, um, uh, so if I look, if I go down the list of things that are, that are similar, it seems to me that the, the whole set of things is uh, going to repeat, it's repetitive. The, the federal government is, uh, has stepped in and said we're going to spend lots of money. In fact, we're going to spend a lot of money. We're not, going to, we're not even going to raise taxes. We're just going to spend as much as we need to rebuild it. Uh, we're going to do what we need to do before the 2006 election to assure that, uh, and this, and now note, now this is true of a Republican Congress. It was true in 1994 of a Democratic Congress. It seems to me that irrespective of the politics uh, of who's in, uh, what happens in regard to FEMA is now not to say you couldn't have done better in one, you might get some, some, change, some, some slight shifts that certainly make a difference. Uh, but the point is, it doesn't seem to me that the government, uh, that, that we have some history here of the government, not, not FEMA not being the organization to re respond to that. Um, so what, what's to say? The bad news is that Congress and the President have been spending, spending money like this since 1823 with the first, uh, with the first uh, Rivers and Harbors Act and the creation of the Army Corps of Engineers. They've been doing it a long time. Uh, when I tried to think hard about what an organization would look like that could handle this for 100 years, I think that's a very hard question, right? I mean, if it's an event that occurs every 100 years, you sure, sure don't want a standing army waiting around 99 years, 11 months, and uh, 29 days waiting for something to happen. And even when you take the disasters that occur, it's not, it's not clear what that organization would look like. But one thing I was pretty sure of, that it, it wouldn't be FEMA, given the way FEMA is set up for, uh, for political purposes. So what's the good news? Well, the good news is that Congress and the President have on occasion stepped beyond electoral self-interest to make uh, institutional changes that extracted them from narrow interests. Some things are base closings are one. There's a, there's a case where no congressman or congresswoman would ever want a base. They'd want your base closed. 
they never want their base closed. And so they created an institutional arrangement that uh, allow, actually allows them to be reelected, but nevertheless, uh, you can close some bases. Uh, another example is the Trade Act, uh, Reciprocal Trade Act of 1932, in which uh, Congress wants everything in their, every, every member of Congress wants what's in their district uh, protected and not the other districts. So the Reciprocal Trade Act has been, and there are other examples, centralization of the budget process, et cetera. Uh, it does seem to me that uh, if Congress, if the government is going to get a handle on this and with Homeland Security uh, and the issues of terrorism, now seems like a pretty good time to uh, begin to think seriously about it. It will take some commission, some extra congressional relationship like base closings or uh, something along those lines in order to be able to uh, uh, solve those problems. So now that you have the uh, bad news, uh, Deborah Brody will give you better news. So, so thanks to all who set up this course, um, this panel, and I'm so pleased, um, not just as a law professor and 24 years faculty member here, but now as the director of a newly launched Center on Ethics to note that this is the kind of collective effort that I don't think we did so well um, in certainly the first couple decades I was here at Stanford. And it has been through, um, I must say, just to, to extract something redeeming from the, um, from the legacy of the last presentation, through organizations um, and individuals affiliated with organizations, interdisciplinary organizations that have managed to get their act together to, to put on responses to these sorts of issues. And I'm pleased to be one member of, of a center. David is on our policy board, as is Deborah, and to work with other groups like the ones that launched this event. I want to talk a little bit about the area of research with which I'm most familiar that intersects with the issues raised by Katrina, that of altruism um, and public service, and what makes individuals respond to social crises and injustices, and what do we know about how we can encourage individuals to act in that way. So I want to start, as did Deborah, with some foundational issues. What do we know, first of all, about uh, uh, altruism? Why do we care whether it happens or not? How often does it happen? And what makes it happen? So, um, so let me begin with a very brief synthesis. There's quite a daunting scope of relevant material across multiple disciplines, philosophy, psychology, economics, sociology, religion, political science, as well as applied work on philanthropy and community service that's sought to speak to these questions. I'll just scratch the surface and then we'll open it up for a conversation with all of you. First of all, what do we mean when we talk about altruism? The sociologist Auguste Comte coined the term altruism derived from the Italian word altrui, which means other. 
And under Kant's definition, altruism signified an unselfish regard for the welfare of others. In contemporary usage, most um, theorists apply the term to voluntary actions that promote the interest of others, primarily for reasons other than self-interest. Um, so some theorists then add the requirement of significant self-sacrifice in order to distinguish altruistic acts from other helping behavior. Now, one of the um, thorny issues, both in philosophy and economics, has been whether something like pure altruism is really possible. There's an egoistic branch of moral philosophy that's joined by the rational choice school of e economics, which generally denies the possibility of any solely disinterested actions. These frameworks assume that all reasoned action is motivated by some self-interest. Why, after all, um, else would someone act in a certain way? So on this um, reasoning, when people act to benefit another, it's because they derive some personal satisfaction from doing so, whether it's internal psychological or more external um, financial, reputational, and so forth. It seems to me, however, that this approach verges on tautology and ignores a, a relevant moral distinction. As many theorists note, an action taken because helping others feels intrinsically rewarding is on somewhat different moral footing than an action taken because it's going to bring extrinsic rewards. So to take the obvious example from the recent disaster, for por performing in a rock concert to aid Katrina victims because it's going to benefit one's career doesn't carry the same moral significance as the physicians who actually went to volunteer in Louisiana in ways that would provide no immediate professional value. Both the actions may be charitable, but the self-serving ones don't seem genuinely altruistic. Well, does it matter why it is that people act in that way. Or to borrow philosopher Bernard Williams' example, when a man gives money to famine relief, does it matter whether his motive is to enhance his standing with the Rotary Club? Some argue that it really makes no difference why it is that individuals provide assistance. The point is to get them to do so, and if after Katrina, school children were guilt-tripped by their peers in, uh, to bringing in their allowance, um, the point is, is money is raised that way. Um, others, and I put myself in this camp, think that it's desirable to encourage actions that are taken primarily out of concern for others but that pure selflessness is an unrealistic ideal. So our motor, Rotary Club member is no moral hero, but he gets some credit for choosing to save lives instead of buying a more expensive television set. As a practical matter, some positive reinforcement is necessary for most individuals most of the time. We want to nurture the altruistic instinct because over the long run, it's probably more likely to promote sustained and effective service than uh, selfishly oriented action. But certainly pure selflessness is neither necessary nor sufficient to promote all public altruistic acts. So what we need to think about is how can we get organizations and institutions, employers, professional associations, nonprofits, educational groups, to find ways of making volunteer assistance a more rewarding and rewarded pursuit. Well, 
To answer that question, then I have to get to a, to a second point. Um, why should we care? Are there particular benefits to society um, and to individuals from actions that are altruistic? And it seems to me that you can group the benefits under a number of levels. First, at the societal level, fostering individuals' sense of community responsibility and concern for others serves multiple public and private sector interests. In addition to the tangible services provided, the outpouring of, of money, uh, food, clothing, services that were available in situations like Katrina, charitable involvement strengthens our cultural cohesion, cooperation, civic engagement. It raises the wonderful question, who are we? And it enlists people to respond in selfless ways. Participation in actions that bridge the difference between different class, ethnic, and racial groups also helps to build a sense of shared purpose and mutual respect that's critical to a well-functioning society. And here Katrina is really a good case in point. Certainly the disasters, exposure of the kind of racial apartheid that Deborah detailed has helped mobilize rebuilding efforts that are going to focus more directly on the have-nots. And public attention has also been redirected to broader public relations, uh, to broader poverty-related concerns. For example, one of the programs here at Stanford that the Ethics Center sponsored uh, was on the delivery of health care and the inequalities and injustices that Katrina exposed. Reporters covering Katrina as the, the televisions rolled, um, showing the enormously moving photographs of the victims, kept asking mindlessly, how can this happen in America? Well, it happens every day. We just don't see it on national television. We don't talk about it in, in programs and panels and in auditoriums like this one, and we need to. Organizations also benefit from a mobilization of public service in the aftermath of injustices or mass disasters. Over the last decade, a growing number of American corporations, legal employers, health service providers, and other institutions have supported volunteer assistance, partly in order to improve community relations, enhance recruitment and retention, build employee skills for a variety of both um, publicly oriented and privately oriented reasons. Um, and we need to applaud those actions, whether or not they're pragmatically oriented, because on some level they do indeed both accomplish the ends to which the, um, the institutions are um, uh, primarily concerned with, but they also give back benefits to individuals. As one corporate manager put it, um, having organized a Habitat for Humanity um, Day, it's a whole lot better than a company picnic. Well, why? What are the individual benefits? Well, here a wide array of studies find that volunteering is correlated with both physical and mental health. People do well by doing good. Compared with the population, Generally, people who regularly assist others apart from just their family and friends have longer lives, less pain, stress, and depression, greater self-esteem. 
Volunteers also report a greater sense of physical well-being, both immediately after helping and when the service is remembered, and are more likely to be happy with their lives. In short, assistance makes people feel better about themselves and provides opportunities to broaden their horizons, do something worthwhile, build social relationships, gain employment and education-related experience. There also appears to be an even biological basis for this what some have called helper's high. Some research suggests that caregiving activities reduce stress, which improves the of functioning of the immune system and triggers, triggers the release of endorphins that produce pleasurable physical sensations. It also gives people a sense of efficacy and self-esteem. And if you read any of the countless testimonials of those who travel to the Gulf Strait for Katrina-related uh, relief efforts, you find again and again that many of them feel that they got back as much as they gave. Given all of these positive benefits, it's somewhat surprising that most Americans don't participate very much in volunteer activities. According to recent comprehensive surveys, somewhere between a third to 45 percent uh, contribute time to charitable activities. The average is about three and a half hours a week. That contribution level is fairly modest considering the broad definitions of service considered, helping in church bingo games or uh, school soccer teams or PTA meetings would help. A much larger um, fraction of Americans give financial contributions, 89% of, of families, but the average amounts are small and relatively little support services for the poor or public interest and social justice causes. About three-quarters goes to religious institutions and activities. Individuals with the greatest amount of time or financial resources available for charitable contributions aren't more generous. In terms of financial contributions, in fact, the wealthy sacrifice a smaller portion of their income than less well-off groups. Well, why? Why is it that more people don't do what might, if the research is correct, suggest would be in their individual and certainly in their collective self-interest? Um, uh, so here, what do we know about what influences charitable behavior? And here there's a fairly wide array of um, research um, with a wide array of methodological approaches. People have looked at large-scale surveys of volunteers, case histories, clinical experiments, child development studies. In describing um, the influences on altruism, most of the literature generally distinguishes between intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Intrinsic factors include the personal characteristics, values, and attitudes that motivate decisions to help others. And the extrinsic factors include the social rewards, reinforcement costs, and other contextual dynamics that affect whether people give. These factors are, of course, all related because individual motivations can only be understood in the context of larger forces that shape personal commitments and group identity. But let me talk about each of them um, a bit separately. Of the intrinsic factors most linked to charitable activity, two personal characteristics appear most significant. One is a capacity for empathy, and the other a sense of human or group solidarity. 
Volunteers in general seem able to identify with the others and to the, see themselves and those whom they help as part of a common social condition. Those feelings of responsibility and empathy are strongest, as won't surprise you, among members of individuals' own immediate geographic community or groups with whom they share some key characteristic, such as race, ethnicity, religion, or sex. So too, a sense of civic or religious obligation or some symbolic link between a particular needy group and a broader national cause may widen individual sense of moral community. So for example, um, during World War II in Holland and Denmark, one reason why so many volunteered to become part of the rescue efforts for Jews from Nazi persecution is that those efforts be came to be seen as emblematic of national resistance, similarly to, to, to Nazi Germany. Similarly, in the United States, in the aftermath of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the outpouring of assistance for victims and their families was fueled partly by a desire to demonstrate national strength and solidarity in the face of an external power. For many individuals, charitable assistance is also a way to express deeply felt personal values. Volunteers often talk about a desire to create a better society, to express religious convictions or ethical principles, such as commitment to civil liberties or racial equality. Sociobiologists also theorize that basic altruistic responses have evolved through natural selection. Certainly, there's reason to think that a predisposition to help others who would be in a position to help you has some adaptive benefits. Such sociobiological theories are also consistent with some psychological research indicating that even infants and toddlers respond empathetically to others' distress or need. It's clear, however, that adults vary a lot in their ability to empathize, and whatever their innate predispositions, socialization has a significant influence on voluntary service. So what do we know about those extrinsic factors? Um, one, it turns out, is whether people have been exposed to injustice and to social activism that addresses them. That, both of those, encourage later volunteer activity. Charitable inclinations can also be strengthened by teaching methods that build students' awareness of others' needs and provide constructive channels for assistance. That's a part, um, uh, of course, oops, didn't mean to do that. Um, that's, of course, part of what um, courses like this are designed to do. And certainly the opportunities that people have with the Haas Center or with clinical um, activities in uh, professional schools, with public service, in, um, in other areas of their lives are the kinds of things that motivate people to, to act. Certainly many in this room, myself included, have been enlisted to care about these activities by some direct hands-on experience. For me, it was working, um, I think, most directly in a legal aid clinic when I was in law school and experiencing both the capacities and the limitations of law, what it was like to actually get um, the utilities on, turned on for a poor person um, in the face of a statute that said turning off utilities was not a valid means to enforce um, uh, rent payments, and a utility company that just had no idea that there was that statute on the books. 
And it's that sense of being able to make something direct happen in someone's um, lives um, that you can see, touch, and feel that is an extraordinarily powerful influence and one that continues after the immediate act is over. Also, social cues and the costs of altruism are critical. So volunteer activity increases when it enables participants to get knowledgeable skills, personal contacts, social status with peers, community members, and employers. And conversely, participation is lower where the costs are high in relation to the benefits, either because it takes too long to get the relevant expertise, the activity is controversial, and there are other um, uh, risks and opportunity costs of involvement. Individuals are most likely to help if they feel that they're competent, if they have sufficient time and resources, if the beneficiary's need is urgent, if the group they're assistance, assisting seems reasonably effective in its efforts. And finally, face-to-face -face exposure is really often the most effective in enlisting aid. Arthur Kessler once put it this way, he said, statistics don't bleed. Coming in contact with those who do or seeing them on your um, evening television set is one of the reasons why you see a much greater response um, to disasters um, in this generation than in earlier. But not all disasters are created equal. And I want to close with just a couple of uh, sobering thoughts about what we can learn from this experience and how it's different from other experiences. Katrina giving is at an all-time high. So far, uh, 1.8 billion has been contributed, and um, no one thinks that we've, um, we've ended the stream. The tsunami, um, by comparison, which was um, the highest recorded um, giving in history, was 1.3 billion. And historically, Americans certainly have been much, much more modest in their response to disasters. The largest amount collected before the tsunami was 50 million. It got 10 by the Red Cross. It got 10 times that for the tsunami. Well, why? Why was that disaster so, so particularly poignant? And why Katrina? Well, um, experts who've studied the tsunami, the tsunami relief effort have suggested a number of factors. First, it was the day after Christmas. People were feeling generous, and there was no competing news coverage, so people were, were deluged in the example. The fact that some American tourists uh, also died, and those pictures were poignantly portrayed, and the fact that there weren't any other disasters immediately around the same time all contributed to that, fact, uh, that factor. And there were some, um, how to put it um, charitably, um, to coin a phrase, good photo ops. By comparison, Rwanda, just in the mid-1990s, where there were uh, good or bad, depending on your point of view, photo ops, only gathered 18 million um, in relief. That compared to 1.8 billion for Katrina. The government's response in general to most mass disasters um, has been fairly tepid. Um, our contribution to earthquake relief around the world is typically on the order of 8 to 14 million. We gave a lot more uh, for the tsunami. And of course, when it's in within our own borders, it's billions. 
And now, if we look to see what's happening with Pakistan, I think you get a very good illustration of the contrast up close and personal. We're seeing all those pictures of people for whom uh, the disaster is likely in some ways to have more enduring consequences because the weather is worse in Pakistan. And unlike the tsunami where people were displaced in a tropical climate, now many of those who are not getting adequate aid and shelter are almost certainly going to die if relief efforts aren't stepped up. But countries, including this one, are meeting only about a third of what's targeted as necessary. And the country is suffering from what, as one expert put it delicately, compassion fatigue. So one question I think we all need to ask ourselves, and perhaps that's the moment on which to open it up for your thoughts, is how to increase people's sense of compassion, how to make them more demanding of their government and of other organizations that are in a position to respond both to the social injustices and to the natural injustices. And I know I speak for everyone on the panel in saying how pleased we are to be part of a conversation that may do just that. So thank you. Well, we have t uh, time now for some um, questions and answers, and I think that uh, Deborah Rohde did ask us a question, so um, I'm wondering if David and Deborah want to um, weigh in on that. It was, again, how, how do we increase our capacity, our willingness to? Well, the, the, the government, is this on? Okay, the, the government part is not, not easy, so l let, me, uh, let me give an example. What? I asked if this was on, so. Yeah, it is on. Well, I'll just breathe it. I'll eat it, okay? Um, so, I don't think the government's task is particularly easy in this. Let me give an example. One of the suggestions for years has been to close the Mississippi River Gulf outlet. That's the smaller channel. And what happened is it's an underutilized shipping channel that provided unimpeded passage for the storm surge into New Orleans. This past May, a computer modeler at LSU showed that a funnel created by flood would amplify storm surges by 20 to 40 experts, but now believe that the initial flooding that overwhelmed it uh, wouldn't, uh, came from that area and wouldn't have occurred. Well, why didn't they do that? Well, one of the reasons is that underutilized channel has lots of jobs, has jobs there and they're mainly minorities in those jobs. So if you're the congressman from that area, then the question is, you say, well, okay, so there could be a flood. Do we close this and lose those jobs? That's not a particularly easy question for a member of Congress to analyze in that sense. So you have to, the last point I, I made when I talked was, you have to be able to step back figure your way, how do you get members to make decisions so that they don't have those contradictory uh, 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 things to deal with. Because you've got a risk analysis that hasn't occurred in 100 years versus a set of jobs. And if you're the member and goes and say, by the way, on the probability that there's going to be a hurricane the next six months, we're closing this down, you'll find that you're not the member from there. I have to interrupt. Uh, I forgot to ask for questions. I, um, there are some cards being circulated. Yeah. 
so please, if you have a question, write it down on a card and it'll be passed up to me. Uh, please do try to address um, the, the presentations directly. Uh, Deborah, do you want to go ahead and? I'll wait to open it up. I don't, I don't have a good answer. Can you hear me? Sorry. Really close. Um, I mean, I don't have a good answer to the question of how to increase altruism. I kind of take both points from the two other panelists that there are structural impediments um, that have to be dealt with. There are organizational questions as to how to make altruism effective, and there are questions about individual agency and how to make people care more about what happens to other people. And um, I don't know how to do that. I don't, certainly don't know how to do that big scale. Well, there's, there's another question for you here in the card. Um, in the case of people being herded into appalling conditions, how can we expect a government that has done this uh, to group in the past, for example, Native Americans, be expected to take care of those living in, in marginal conditions? In other words, is there history of disregard or even um, um, harm against certain groups, and how can we or should we expect the, the government now to, to act any differently? Um, government is an imperfect agent, but it is our agent. And I think that there's a difference, actually, between my hypothetical example and the historical past and what has happened in Katrina. And I use the terminology of passive injustice versus active injustice. And I think that what we see in Katrina is largely a case of passive injustice of the government failing to act rather than the government deliberately acting so as to put people at risk. And I think passive injustice, as I said, there's reason to be optimistic about passive injustice. That means the government, um, the agency of the government, it's possible to move them um, because they're not intentionally mm -hmm. trying to harm their own citizens. I think when you have a government that's intentionally trying to harm its own citizens, you're in a very different ballpark. Well, and I don't think we should be um, fatalistic, um, just realistic about what the government can do. I mean, if you look at r race relations in this country for all the appalling um, statistics that Deborah cited, you know, it sure wasn't better in the 1950s. I mean, the last half century has brought enormous social progress around those issues. I clerked for Justice Marshall, who used to talk about what passed for racial justice in the South when he was um, litigating desegregation cases, representing you know, uh, African-Americans who were accused of a crime against a white. You could have the whole trial in three minutes in some southern towns in Louisiana. You know, just um, the charges, the witnesses, and the sentencing. You wouldn't even necessarily learn if it was a, a robbery case what was stolen. Um, you know, we've made a huge amount of difference by by mass political movements, bringing people face to face with what social injustices were. Think about all those um, photographs of um, uh, the the bullhorns and the the civil rights demonstrators being hosed in Birmingham. Um, you know, bringing those images to people, um, showing them um, up close and personal what some of the social costs of racial injustice was, has led to um, uh, enormous um, social change. Um, you look around this room, it looks very different than this room would have looked 
uh, 25 years ago when I came to Stanford. And that's because in part of changes in the law and the government as well as social attitudes. And they all work together. And I think, you know, building people's awareness of ways in which in the past the government has been complicit or passive can give people some strategies for trying to prevent it in the future. I, I would agree with okay. the, their comments, so I have nothing to add. Okay, well, this, this one might also be for you, David, um, in sort of an upbeat way. Um, isn't it clear that a governmental organization such as the U.S. Coast Guard that has a clear mission and is well-trained to carry out that mission was extraordinarily successful in the Katrina disaster? Does this say something about how the various governmental agencies at all levels, levels should proceed to fix the problems that we've seen? Well, the, the Coast Guard is a special case, right? Because what they had to do, they didn't have to ask anybody else. They didn't have to fit in. They could, they could just do it. The problem, in some senses, is the Constitution, right? There's a, a state and a local level. I did, in preparation for this, call the a consul for the uh, Homeland uh, Defense uh, Committee in the House of Representatives and ask him about what he thought about this set of issues. And he said that, well, uh, so I said, why not? A lot of people are just saying, why not let the Army do it? We'll let the military do it. But because there were all those people in the dome. When the military came in, they were gone in a day. And, and the answer he said to that was obviously the constitutional one about their state and local governments are the first actors, et cetera. But he also said that, uh, that uh, there's great variation across the states and that uh, some states are much more readily prepared. And uh, in Homeland Security, for example, he, of course, couldn't say uh, definitely, but he said he thought uh, the New York City was actually in some ways better than the federal government. So, so the levels of uh, the, the integrating it across, uh, what was the plan, 458 pages. If you actually looked at the 458-page security plan, you, you, you know there was trouble. You should know there's trouble when there's 458 plans, 458 pages, imagine. So this Coast Guard was lucky. They, they had a straight shot and knew what to do. Um, here's an interesting question. I guess it was picked up um, from my remark about um, Bush's suspending the Davis-Bacon. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Uh, should local unskilled workers be paid the same rates as skilled workers from California and um, Minnesota? In other words, you know, what, what's wrong with suspending the, the rec requirement that the uh, minimum wage be uh, extended to those working on disaster relief. Any? I, S since uh, there's a different cost, I, I suppose yeah, the implications um, of living in. I have, I'm on the board of a uh, minority owned construction company uh, that is in Mississippi do doing this work. And uh, we actually talked about this issue uh, last week and at least for the next three weeks uh, the company is using uh, lower wages, and a part of the claim they made, which uh, I, I know at least this individual is truthful, was they can't get union workers in there. They're, they're still dispersed, and uh, they can set the, and they have families so that at least for a month they're going to continue to use these workers in these camps where they can bring them in, and, uh, and at the end of that month they're going to reevaluate. That's, so that's one experience but at least that's the reason that this individual gave. Deborah, do you want to... And Lucius, that's Charles Phillips. Well, you know, I, I'm straying out of my expertise here. Um, 
you know, my own view is we ought to have living wage requirements <laughs> across the board collectively. Um, and, you know, under what circumstances do you want to suspend in a given case, I think, you know, is highly contextual in us, the very second best world in which we're dealing. I look to try to figure out what's best for the folks there, both in the long and the short term, and recognize that there may be some trade-offs between them. Okay, um, there are some that sort of cluster together, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna put them together. Um, one is between Professor Palumbo Liu's and Brady's focus on the failings of the federal government, as well as Professor Satz's distinction between injustice and misfortune. I fear the dis discussion glosses over very important players in the disaster, namely the local community and the individual. In my experience working with the Red Cross in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, uh, these were, in some respects, the most important determinants of the personal outcomes of the storms. By focusing on the federal government presumed national in injustice, are we not overlooking the important factors, these important factors and potential uh, safeguards and in doing so failing to empower local communities and individuals? And the, the, the other card, uh, the individual says, among the structural impediments I witnessed as a volunteer amongst larger groups, we're overcoming poor lumbering infrastructure, leveraging expertise, coping with volatile information dynamics, reconciling multiple players. What would you suggest to a small group on how best to pass on their success and lessons learned to these groups? So both of these are, are looking at the, the distinction between larger uh, uh, entities and the, more, um, the smaller ones and the success of the smaller ones in addressing things more immediately and, and how one might learn from the other. Is there, is there any kind of interface between the lower local and the and FEMA, for example, or is that, uh, what should we do about that? Well, um, let me say one thing. I mean, one reason why we divided the panel up the way th that we did was that you would have one person who was gonna talk about the non-governmental response. So that's why I talked about individuals and, and organizations. And I think all of us believe that they're an essential uh, supplement to whatever the government does in these circumstances and in many cases are more um, effective and most of us would like to see them um, uh, become more so. I, I, the one thing I would say in terms of um, enabling local organizations and it, individuals who are working for nonprofits or volunteer organizations to to make sure that their services are most effectively used is to try to do some systematic evaluation um, one of the failures people have pointed out with some of the charitable um, uh, activities that were set up in the post 9-11 uh, effort was that nobody really tracked how effective they were. So in my own field, law, for example, all these lawyers showed up to provide volunteer legal services and nobody followed up with the clients afterwards to find out, you know, did they get anything good um, out of it and how effective it was and how, you know, what made some groups more able to do it effectively and what um, kept other groups from being efficient first responders. So, so maybe this is just the, you know, the fact that I'm an academic and um, inevitably always looking for the research angle in something, but I do think one lesson that we ought to learn is to do a kind of systematic retrospective afterwards and both to do it at the global level as David did 
you know, let's look at the history of FEMA and see how come we're, we keep recreating the pattern, but then also to look at the performance of individual organizations and to get back feedback from the communities that they're actually trying to help. We rarely, too, far too rarely, ask those who have experienced service about the quality and cost effectiveness of what they got. I, I alluded to that when I said that there were at least four, five separate commissions that had said that the federal government funding, they could classify too many things as disasters and put too much money into it. Uh, and what that led to was state and local governments uh, saying, well, we don't have to take care of it, they do. So the, the, question, the, the, the questioner is absolutely right that the nature of that relationship between state and local and federal government is crucial in these matters, and it'll be very crucial in any homeland security matter involving terrorist attacks, particularly with nuclear weapons in American cities. So that's a question that they have not got straightened out, and uh, they certainly need to get it straightened out. Uh, so you, what, whoever asked that question was absolutely right. It's a very, very complicated issue that has not been properly worked out. Yeah, uh, just, um, I think government includes not only the federal government, but the local governments, and that some of the failures to act and botch plans were really on the local level and that local government should be held responsible. And one of the most striking things, I think, to me was how little the local government seemed to know about the population that it was serving. So that the fact that the transportation uh, needs of the population were not known by the local officials is a glaring, I think, um, shortfall on the part of government. And one, one last thing, they, they need to get realistic. The, the notion that uh, American cities, you can evacuate a city of four million people like Houston in a day is just ridiculous. There's no way we don't have the, I don't think there's any city in the world you could do that. And so, uh, but the politician's tendency is to say, oh no, we can do it, we can do it, we'll do it better next time. And, and the result of that is you often don't get plans. Uh, so I, I worry a little bit about when they rebuild New Orleans. I hope that there's representatives of the relevant groups and they're sitting down talking about how should New Orleans be rebuilt and what's it gonna look like. Uh, and, and maybe it should be smaller, maybe it should only be 300,000 people. I don't know the answer to that question, but I hope in the process that they're doing that, I hope that the federal government, state and local communities and representatives of the people most affected are there and have some real input into the process about what it ought to look like in the future. Thanks. There's, there are a couple of cards that have to do with race, and one is uh, addressed to uh, Deborah Rohde in particular, but I'll read both. Uh, Dr. Rohde, do you think that racist or anti-Muslim thought may also be contributing to the smaller level of response to the earthquake in Pakistan? And then, I guess this is for everyone, what are your thoughts about how racism impacts upon uh, how we perceive people's, in, people's entitlement to benefits, uh, either government-based or charity-based? Anti-black racism embodies stereotypes of black people, especially black women, as it relates to welfare as greedy or undeserving. There was a black uh, New Orleans official that asserted that the victims of Katrina were look, looking for a hand up, not a hand out. I thought this was shocking because it implied that there was even a question of deservedness of the victims, potentially classifying them as lazy government moochers. Very racist, I think. What do you think? So bo both in terms of Katrina, but also in terms of Pakistan. Yeah, I, I do think that that um, racial bias is part of the explanation. Um, it's part of the explanation for the inadequate um, uh, sort of responses at 
domestically as, as well as internationally. And if you look at where we've given our aid, I mean, one of the things, as I mentioned briefly, that the research shows is that people are more likely to support those with whom they feel some particular affinity. So in, you know, the more racial polarization there is in a society, the harder it is to build the, the commonalities of we, and as you get it um, at the global level, it's even harder. So getting people to really care about Rwanda um, babies or, you know, the, the 11 million that are dying from preventive illness in, in Africa every year. Um, so, so, yes, I do think those, those um, facts are there and need to be surfaced. Anybody else want to weigh in on this? Or? I completely agree with what Deborah just said. Well, I, I guess I will then. I, I don't know that my not, I have not given as much money to the Pakistan relief as I've given to Katrina, and I don't think that makes me a racist. Uh, I give more money to uh, Americans. I give more money to my children than I give to the country and so on. And I, uh, I, just, I mean, it's great, but, but the fact is I have a limited amount of money to give, and if I have to give that, I've got to make some decisions. And one of those decisions is I'm going to give more money to the Red Cross in uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, uh, as I have, and I'm not going to give as much to Pakistan. And, and I'm sorry about that, but I can't. So I, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, there's certainly part of it's true, but I'm, I'm not sure all of that's true. It's, it's pretty complicated to try and figure out why we give where we give. Yeah, well, I didn't mean to suggest all of that. I, I think some in the Pakistan case also has to do with people's confidence and the effectiveness that the aid they funnel will actually get to the victims. There's not a very good track record in that country of that happening and there's not much of an infrastructure to support it. I think the Red Cross has a reasonably good track record in this country and one reason why there was such um, a willingness on the part of people to write checks is they did have some confidence that that, that money was going to go where it was destined. Yeah. Uh, let me just, you know, I think that these are complicated issues. People respond in very different ways and clearly people feel more responsible for calamities and, and costs in our own country with our own institutions than we do in countries whose institutions are not, we're not bound up with in the same ways. So I think that's right, that that's an important distinction. But even when you're thinking about foreign aid or foreign interventions, I think it's been pretty clear that race has been a factor in where, I mean, not simply, you know, strategic national interest, but race has been a factor in which interventions we decided, you know, to, to put a lot of effort into. Rwanda being a case in point of, of a country we didn't think it was worth putting any effort into, no matter how minimal. Um. Okay, there are, there are two final ones that I think can be either put together as complementary or, or we have more coming up. Okay, well, I'll, I'll use these right now until I get the other ones. Either complementary or offsetting. One was, is how can we obtain good planning from our government? <laughs> For example, hurricane problems or post-war Iraq. And then question. would each speaker please address, given their remarks, whether there are grounds for hope <laughs> in the wake of Katrina, for the common good, for justice, for, for FEMA, <laughs> for compassion and altruism. So um, take either one as you wish. Hopefulness, well, or how do we get want, the You want to give, throw the last one in so yeah. we can do it all in okay, one sure. swoop? Okay, uh, sure. This is 
explicitly for, for David, what do you think are the keys to successful measures such as base closings which can uh, suit, the suit the political needs to be reelected? Okay. Or skirt the political needs to yeah. be reelected, sorry. I'll read that again. What do you think are the keys to successful measures such as base closings which can skirt the political needs to be reelected? How, in other words, would you describe the measures, the working of these, these measures, I guess? Sorry. So I guess in all cases, we're thinking about successful ways to bypass self-interest um, and um, move toward compassion, altruism, and the common good. Well, I, good government on top. I, I don't, I mean, I wasn't, I don't believe you're going to get self-interest out of the Congress. Uh, neither did uh, the founding uh, fathers, uh, so uh, Federalists 10 and 51 are pretty clear on that. But what I meant by uh, the notion to get it away is you have to set it up so that there's a mechanism such that uh, in the aggregate uh, the decision could be made and members can go back home and explain why that happened. It doesn't mean that they're less self-interested, it just means that Congress decides that it's not fast on its 1,170 feet, and therefore it passes up to the president or a commission the ability to make the decision. So that, that's what I meant by that. And, and in regard to hope, I mean, I, you know, the United States Congress, they're going to spend uh, billions and billions of dollars uh, re restoring New Orleans. I, uh, there, there's going to be a lot of money spent there. Hopefully it's spent wise and well, and you can kind of take a little of the pork barrel, as much of the pork barrel out as possible. But, I mean, that, that is a sign of hope, that there's not just the amounts of money Deborah talked about. There's a huge amount of federal money uh, going in there. Let's hope they spend it wisely. Yeah, I guess I have a somewhat different, more kind of general take on this, which is that there are some historical moments. I mean, people talk about Katrina's window. And it's not that when you look through the window, there's something new there. I mean, we knew there was inequality. We knew there was poverty. But it's another opportunity to look at it in the face. And sometimes in these moments, people rally and act. And nobody can predict that people will do that um, or which moments galvanize a nation or a community. There's certainly been a lot of discussion about Katrina and about the response of government. There certainly have been some movements in the political arena. The rating, approval ratings of the government plummeted. There's a lot more discussion. Maybe out of some of this dialogue and discussion, there will be better um, thinking about how to plan uh, an evacuation for a city, how to think about disasters. Disasters are something we need to think about in the world that we're living. How are we going to respond to them? And to think about the window on race and class that Katrina's opened up for us. Um, and I'm, you know, not pessimistic. I'm not op that optimistic. <laughs> It'd be out of character for me to be that optimistic, yes, but, I'm, actually, yeah. but I'm, not, I'm not completely pessimistic no, about yeah. the prospects. That's very good, actually. Um, you know, in, in my youth, in the, uh, I grew up in sort of the last stages of the um, student radicalism, and we were very against incremental social change. We thought that was all just window dressing and, you know, going to shore up a fundamentally bankrupt system, and, you know, we needed foundational 
um, uh, total restructuring. Now, you know, um, with uh, in my my mid fifties, I, I kind of think that incremental social change is all we've got, and that we use every opportunity when it presents itself to try to push it towards something more foundational and fundamental. And I think Deborah's right. There have been. Um, moments in which either through mass disasters or social justices, uh, social injustice, we've, we've, we, we have as a collective body responded in ways that tap our best instincts and aspirations. And I think just organizing this course is one small way that does it. Everybody's giving up time to talk about the things that really matter. And it's that impulse writ large that's going to make us march ever so slowly and gradually towards, um, towards, towards a society to which we can always uh, all be more proud. So thank you for, for providing this occasion for the dialogue. Well, on that note, which is nice optimistic and poetic at the same time, uh, thank you all for coming. And th join me in thanking the panelists and the organizers. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.